This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host Nellie Bailey. Coming up, black America has invested much of its energies in the promise of public education. But a black educator wants schools, as we know them, abolished. And Julian Assange is in the courts, fighting against extradition to the United States. Why are both corporate political parties so intent on imprisoning the founder of WikiLeaks? But first, Kansas City, Kansas, like most American cities, is the site of massive gentrification, forcing black and poor people out of the urban core. But in the past year, tenants in Kansas City have fought back, when in passage of a tenant's bill of rights. We spoke to one of the main organizers of the city's tenant organization, Tara Rahuvir. She said Kansas City tenants have made great strides in a short space of time. It's been a whirlwind. We began organizing last February. And I should say, I'm from Kansas City. I grew up here and I have been studying evictions in Kansas City for about six years. And then ultimately, my analysis was that as an organizer, I knew that actually coming and talking to people about my data and my research, in fact, I had been coming back for two years, almost every month, talking to people, and nothing had changed at all. In fact, the problem was getting worse, and more and more people were losing their housing and falling into instability. So I moved back last February, so February 2019, and we started organizing KC tenants. And by we, I mean I was in touch and in relationship with a number of people in the community who had been impacted by housing insecurity and homelessness. And they gave me names of other people in their community who had been impacted by the same. And we started meeting. So on February 17th, we had our first meeting in a union hall on Paseo in Kansas City, and about 12 people attended. The next week, we had 35 people. The week after that, we had 55 people. The next Monday, we had a rally on the steps of City Hall with about 100 people, and we launched a people's housing platform. And then we wrote a questionnaire for all of the municipal candidates for mayor and city council to respond to questions from people who are impacted by housing insecurity about what their plans were. And then we made a voter guide, and then we influenced the primary election. And then we made housing the key issue in the general election for mayor and city council. And we hosted a city council forum where we put the candidates' feet to the fire on this issue, and we made them answer to the people who have been impacted. We had house meetings with the mayoral candidates in the home of people who rent from corporate slumlords and people who are Section 8 vouchers. And we asked them to take solidarity actions with those tenants. And then finally, we pushed the mayoral candidate so far that the winning candidate within a week of his election committed that he wanted his legacy to be housing, not a streetcar, not a fancy airport, but housing. And then in the months that followed, we did an issue cutting. And the thing that we decided that we wanted to run our first campaign around was a tenant's bill of rights. 
so sort of protecting us from where we are right now against the abuses of landlords in the market. And so we wrote a Tenants' Bill of Rights based on the experiences of the leaders in our base. We pulled in lawyers to help us draft that into actual legislation. We recruited champions in the mayor and several members of city council who had made a commitment to us in the spring. And we organized for months. We organized public debates in Kansas City. We organized uh, partners in direct service and other partners in the community. And then finally, in December, we won our Bill of Rights that we had written, which we think will transform the relationship between property owners and tenants in Kansas City. Well, that certainly was a whirlwind. But what does the response of the community tell you about the depth of the crisis in housing in Kansas City and in the nation? It's a great question, Glenn, because our meetings happen for two hours on Saturdays. And the people at our meetings are mostly poor and working class folks. Many of them have children. Many of them work multiple jobs. And frankly, they have a lot of other places to spend their time, but they keep coming back. Tells us a lot about the crisis in Kansas City. People from when we started organizing in February were telling me, I don't think I'm going to be able to leave if we don't make some radical change in this city today. And there's a real urgency among especially poor and working class black and brown communities in Kansas City because they're rapidly being displaced. Kansas City is facing some of the same problems that we see in cities across the country with a huge black exodus from the center of the city to the outer ring suburbs and even further as gentrification takes over the city and commercial development and downtown development pushes people out of communities where they've lived for decades. Well, in most cities, that gentrification process is aided and abetted by local black politicians. I think that can be the case. And uh, honestly, I think most institutions and people who hold power in the world as it is aid and abet the system continuing to do its damage, right? The system of racial capitalism is supported by people and in all over the place and all over the map and of all different colors and positions in society. So our project is a radical one because we have to confront all of those different people and institutions And we also have to confront them bringing our own imagination about a different way that things could occur, right? A different world is possible, and we have to be the ones who imagine it. Um, Something that we say in our meetings a lot is that the people closest to the problem are the closest to the solution. So we have to imagine the radical solutions that our folks need and bring those solutions to the people who hold power to push them to change their ways and actually adopt our proposals as the proposals of the future, as opposed to supporting the status quo, which is obviously not working. The Tenants' Bill of Rights that you got adopted by the Kansas City City Council is an impressive, basic tenants' rights bill. But what does it do? How does it stand up or empower people to stand up against the gentrification juggernaut? Great question. There are a few different elements to the Bill of Rights. One was simply a resolution that compiles all of the rights that tenants in Kansas City can expect. And this sounds simple, but it's actually not, because there are some rights that we already had on the books in Kansas City and some new ones that we won. But having rights on the books means nothing if people don't know what their rights are. 
So we passed this resolution through the city council. And one of the most important pieces of passing that resolution is that we also passed a commitment that every landlord must provide this bill of rights to every tenant that they rent to at the time of signing lease so that each tenant is equipped with their rights before they begin renting a property. The other part of this package is an ordinance that actually enshrines a whole new slate of rights for tenants in Kansas City. One of those is that we've expanded protections against discrimination. We've expanded them well beyond the federal protections in the Fair Housing Act to include protections from discrimination on the basis of gender expression and gender identity, among other things. We've also expanded protections for people who have prior evictions and convictions on their record. And basically what we've said is that a landlord cannot put a box on an application that asks you whether or not you've been evicted or whether or not you have a conviction on your your record, and then use that as a reason to throw your application in the trash. They actually have to have a conversation with you. There are other things in there about a tenant's right for more than 24 hours notice from their landlord um, before entry into a unit. And the landlord must get affirmative consent from a tenant and then also specify who's coming to the unit, why are they coming, and when can the tenant expect them to be there. And then finally, a really critical piece of what we want is about accountability, right? Because some of these rights we already had, they just weren't being enforced and the landlords weren't being held accountable. So we've won an office of the tenant advocate through the city where the city will allocate more resources and staff time to actually investigate and enforce rights violations. And then we've also upped the accountability for landlords. So it's not just a small fine because big corporate landlords don't care about a small fine. It's the risk that a landlord, if they violate a tenant's rights, could have their license to do business in Kansas City suspended or potentially revoked if they don't fix their problems. And what about landlord resistance to Section 8 subsidized tenants? So this is one of the big areas where we lost and we were forced to compromise in the campaign. One of the rights that we hope to win through the Bill of Rights package was the right to protection against source of income discrimination, basically protection for voucher holders or housing assistance recipients against discrimination from their landlords. And what was so embarrassing, Glenn, is that many, many cities and states have already passed source of income discrimination bans. I think it's over 64 cities and over 11 states have already passed such bans. So Kansas is behind, and many people are impacted. Thousands of people are impacted because landlords are allowed to discriminate against them due to their housing assistance. And really, this is a racialized issue, right? But in the last weeks of the campaign, this was one of the components of the package that was chipped away by our opponents. But we're not done, and there are many people in our base who are impacted by this issue. So we're going to come back for this in the next several months. Do you think that you've got the landlords and their representatives on the council scared of you yet? (laughs) I think we definitely do. We wouldn't have gotten this far in so little time if we didn't. And I think that has to do with us upending the way that power functions in Kansas City. Kansas City is kind of a city of kings. There are individuals have a ton of power and control institutions. And those individuals tend only to relate to one another, but that cuts out the people. But the people operating as a collective have shown themselves in the last year to be quite powerful. 
And when we turn up in droves and we bring the crisis to its creators, we cannot be ignored. And that, I think, has caused a lot of fear in the hearts and minds of the power and for good, right? They should be accountable to a collective of people demanding better for their city. So I think that fear happily has translated into real action. And we have built champions out of people who maybe initially were scared of us and then started listening and realized that we were just speaking the truth and we weren't being radical. We were talking about what we are owed as tenants in Kansas City. Gentrification comes in in the guise of renaissance. That's the euphemism for black people's removal. Uh, I know you guys have been brainstorming with the tenants that you work with about how to halt the juggernaut. What's some of your ideas? That's absolutely right, Glenn. In a place like Kansas City that has been kind of lazily understood to be like a sleepy town where there wasn't much happening. It was always affordable. In recent years, as the city, especially the downtown, has started to boom, it has been framed as a renaissance. But the question that we kept asking in the spring during the election was, renaissance for whom? Who is benefiting from this downtown resurgence? And who is being pushed away? Who is paying the cost of the resurgence? Kansas City. So the first way that we've started to take on this juggernaut, this kind of narrative of renaissance, is by posing questions like that, is by inserting our people's stories into that narrative and questioning how the city can get away with such a one-sided story of a renaissance as we are losing our workforce, as we are losing teachers to teach our students, as our students are losing the ability to keep their seats at school because their parents are being evicted as our homelessness numbers are growing. How can this be a renaissance? We've had people die on the streets for the crime of being poor in the last year. That's not a story of renaissance. That's a story of failure. So the first thing we've done is to confront that narrative. And the second thing that we've done is take direct action, right? We've been calling out publicly and in the street some of the creators of that myth and the people who are benefiting from it. And we will continue to do that. We're building a program to unionize tenants in buildings across the city. They have the power to collectively bargain with their landlords and to take on some of the corporate players from out of the state and out of the city who are profiting from this myth around Renaissance. But really what they're doing is extracting from our communities. You're an activist, but also a student of the movement. 40, 50 years ago, there was a national tenants organization with chapters in many cities doing some fantastic work. What happened with the tenants' rights movement? You're right that there was a huge surge in the 60s and 70s. There was a strong, vibrant tenants movement across the country. And I would argue, actually, that that didn't go anywhere. It was just not as powerful as it needed to be at the time to combat the power of the dominant narrative, which became this narrative that the housing crisis was a crisis of individual failures. It was people who were irresponsible and they weren't doing enough to get by. It became a dominant narrative about the failures of the public system and the need to privatize 
And along the way, we saw the demolition of public housing, the stigmatization of any federal programs that benefited poor and working class people in this country. And that's laid the groundwork for the contemporary crisis as we know it. So the TEN movement has existed through all of that. It just hasn't been compete against that dominant narrative and all of the policies that the kind of neoliberal class won in the intervening 40 years. But now I think we're starting to see a sea change. And for the same reasons that I named in Kansas City, there's urgency across the country, right? In 2020, there's not a single county in the United States where a minimum wage worker working full-time can afford a two-bedroom apartment. So the scale and depth of the crisis is such that it's unignorable anymore. And across the country and in the presidential election, for example, housing has become a central issue again in a way that it hasn't been in nearly 40 or 50 years. And the tenant movement is responding to that. And the tenant movement has actually caused that. And we're starting to see action in tenants, action in Oakland, Moms for Housing and other groups like that, that's demanding the radical change that we've needed for so long. There's been an affordable housing crisis for decades in this country, but most of the attention locally has been focused on getting rid of public housing, which has now gone extinct in many cities. That's right. And I think one of the one of the other elements of my work is that I work on a national campaign for a homes guarantee. The idea being simple, that we live in the richest country in the history of the world. We can and we must guarantee that everyone has a safe, healthy, accessible, truly and permanently affordable home. This is not a radical idea. It's actually just an idea that's rooted in the theory that we have an abundance of riches. We're just not applying them to solve our deepest problems. And one of the central demands in our home guarantee agenda is to return to treating housing as a public good rather than a commodity which is to say the government must build and manage social housing and public housing um, unlike ever before and at a scale that we've never seen, even beyond the scale that we saw during the New Deal era when we constructed public housing. And Glenn, I think it's important that we acknowledge that the myth around public housing and the stigma around public housing is a highly racialized myth and stigma because when public housing was constructed during the New Deal era, it was constructed mostly to serve white working class people in this country. And then those same people were subsidized to move to the suburbs through FHA loans. And when black and brown people moved into public housing, it's not an accident that that coincides with a moment when public housing started being disinvested from. And then, of course, we saw it disinvested from to the extent that it became dilapidated and it was demolished. And we basically victim blamed the residents of that public housing And unfortunately, that stigma is so pervasive and lives with us today. We have a big project ahead of us to undo that myth. Yes, the working principle these days is that concentrations of affluent people is good, but concentrations of poor people, very, very bad. Exactly. And again, highly racialized. You can't uncouple the classism from the racism and all of that. the myths in the 1980s and the 1990s around concentration of poverty in public housing used all kinds of scare tactics, scare tactics about drug use and crime and violence. And the scare tactics, unfortunately successful 
in building public will to tear down those projects. It became a public spectacle, a horrific public spectacle to demolish the homes of thousands of people and then scatter them all over the state and all over the country, tearing apart communities in an act of violence that we won't recover from for decades, if ever. You made lots of progress in a very little time. Are you more encouraged and optimistic than when you started out in Kansas City with this project? I am, Glenn, because I think my leaders in Kansas City, in my base, people who have faced the hardest faces of this crisis, and they have taught me so much about power, about organizing, about housing policy and what we need and what we are owed. And there's nothing like that education to create hope in me personally. And specifically, I think there's a story in Casey Tennant that has nothing to do with housing policy, really, but it has everything to do with people seeing their power and standing in their power and feeling the power of a collective and participating in political life that they've always previously understood to be not built for them, right? We have leaders in our base, like a woman named Tiana Caldwell, who when I met her just last year was living homeless and paying 300 to $500 a week to live in a hotel. And when she found Casey Tennant, she had never participated in public or political life before because she had always correctly assumed that those spaces were not built for her. But within Casey Tennant, she has built a space where the power of our collective has changed the entire face of the city. And Tiana's growth through that process has been remarkable to watch. She's become a national leader on this issue. She's testified to Congress many times over in the last year. She's helped to shape presidential platforms. And the way that she understands power now, you can't take that away from her. And we've built a base of people who you can't unpoliticize. And that, I think, brings me a lot of hope because we can do that in every community across the country, and we must. That was Tara Rahuvir of Kansas City Tenants. Growing numbers of activists are calling for the abolition of prisons in the U.S. as vestiges of slavery that cannot be reformed. David Stovall is a professor of African-American studies and criminology at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Stovall says not only should prisons be done away with, but schooling as we know it should also be abolished. In many of our communities that service Black and Latinx people, we see schools that operate in a particular way. They're very steeped in orthodoxy. They're very steeped in high-stakes testing. They're very steeped in rules and order that stifle creativity because of the belief that black bodies are to be policed before they are to be educated. And that's an age-old belief in the United States. And I think we have to, we have to wrestle with that. We have to come to grips with that. So what I was learning from the prison abolitionists was this idea was that it wasn't necessarily talking about blowing up prisons and everybody walking out. The idea was we have to understand what are the conditions that get people to prison. Lack of access to health care, lack of access to quality education, lack of access to viable employment. What are the things that we are doing to eliminate those pathways that get people 
incarcerated. And if we think about schooling, I'm making a very distinct difference between schooling and education, where school is this order and orthodoxy, and education will actually have you ask questions of that orthodoxy to tear it down, to build something else. And that thing that you build is something that you need. So if we look at the rules and regulations of prisons, everybody lining up, marcated spaces, metal detectors, armed guards, you can see the exact same thing in a schoolhouse. And I think it behooves us to begin to ask a different set of questions around what is it that we're doing and what are these schools intended to do? And I think that's where we have to begin our inquiry because we know that in many of these spaces, they are not serving black and brown youth. Yes, you write that as an ideological and material formation, school is not connected to any project of liberation. And therefore, the liberation movements, activist movements, need to be thinking about what that project is. Yes. I mean, this idea of now, if we know that those spaces are not intended to act in any ways or move in any ways or to support any kind of liberatory understanding, then what are they for? And then another question that I think is a little bit deeper, right? So if we think about the difference between education and school, then the question I'm also asking is, can education happen in these places that we traditionally call school? Or if education happens in those places, do we need to call them something else, right? Because this idea of schooling is deeply ensconced in white supremacy. It's deeply entrenched in the idea of the inability of black and brown people to change their conditions. And in fact, when we look at these educators like Mary McLeod Bethune, who started Bethune-Cookman, they didn't create these spaces because of a robust schooling system. They created those spaces in spite of the schooling system. So we have always had these building blocks to an abolitionist mindset in schooling spaces. And I was just trying to bring that forward in terms of thinking about what we can learn from the process of prison abolition if we apply it to schooling, which is also deeply rooted in those logics of white supremacy. Yes, you said that this essay is more practical than ideological, and you recount how you talk to teachers, and you've asked individual teachers and teachers in groups if they were good teachers because of the school system, or despite it, or because of something else. Why'd you go through mm -hmm. that exercise? Because this idea around anybody who has had a teacher that they identify as good, the next question I want to ask them is, if you remember what that teacher did, do you also remember that teacher being in trouble and getting in trouble with the administration or the district or what have you? And when people affirm that and answer yes, I'm always saying, well, we need to think about why that dynamic existed. And that dynamic existed because they were less concerned with schooling and more concerned with your education. 
to the point where they did not fear retribution. And I think this becomes important when we recall that, right? Those good teachers that we had were not fearful of the system in which they were employed. They were much more concerned about enhancing skills that you already have for you to make informed decisions to change the conditions of yourself and the people that you care about. So for me, it's an age-old question that we just need to unpack. We haven't really dug into what those teachers actually were doing, but we do know and we did observe those teachers getting in trouble and sometimes removed because of their commitment to education over schooling. Yes, and many teachers who started out good or with good intentions get beat down and basically destroyed as educators by the system. Yes. You speak in terms of the school as opposed to education, the school becoming a conduit to justify the genocidal practices of the state. How does that go on day to day in classrooms? Well, this thing around, if a young person is in a classroom and they are not seeing images of themselves that challenged orthodoxy, that dared to push back on systems that oppress them, or if they hear, continually to hear these downtrodden stories about themselves, then after weeks, months, and years of that conditioning, now you can be in a space where you are now expected to either be helpless or they've created a condition, and this is the district and the school, have created a condition where you are instantaneously deemed defiant for resisting those practices that dehumanize you in schools. So, you know, we no longer talk about dropouts, right? We need to talk about pushouts because young people are smart. And when young people start to reject their dehumanization, a system of orthodoxy that's rooted in white supremacy is going to criminalize you for that rejection. So now when we think about that in real time, now we have to think about what is it that we're communicating in schools? For what purpose? And now what does it mean to connect education to the lives of the young folks that we're engaging? And when schools don't do that, young folks resist not because they are naturally defiant, but they're resisting because they do not see themselves in ways that are affirming or supportive of their learning. And now I think in writing something like this, it's just going back to what educators of Black and Latino youth over the years have been saying. We need to have a way to connect to the lives of our students. And if we are not doing that, then we need to revisit what it is that we're doing. So now the school plays a significant role in that either acceptance of the dehumanization or the rejection of the dehumanization. And when young people reject that dehumanization, they now are deemed criminal. And I think that's, we have to revisit how the function of schools, right? Because schools are rooted not necessarily in your learning, but to indoctrinate you largely around order and discipline, right? So this thing, or punitive discipline. 
right? So this thing around, so schools aren't necessarily places to uplift you in some instances. Schools are places to remind you what happens to you when you step out of line, like a prison. So I think when we start to grapple with that in real time, we can begin to figure out ways to unpack that and dismantle it. Well, when you speak of abolition of school as we know it, how is that received first by teachers and also by students? Yeah, it's interesting. Some teachers will say, what is this madness? And then others will say, well, you got a point. And young folks, the first thing they say is, man, this is stuff that we are not just thinking about. But this is stuff that we're experiencing in the day to day. So, yeah, you got a point. You're right. And we need to do something about it. In fact, a group of high schoolers in Detroit actually read the article and called me and they invited me to a presentation that they did at a conference called Free Minds, Free People that happened in the Twin Cities this past summer. And their message to me was, hey, we read what you wrote. We think it makes sense. And In our reading of it, we decided to do something about it. So the whole presentation was about them doing something about it because their water supply at their high school had been poisoned. And the city had done all this stuff to tell them that there was nothing wrong with the water, similar to the case in Flint. And the young folks, for three or four days, shut the school down and started freedom schools in their communities. Now, these are 6- and 17-year-olds who actually said, there's a point here, and we will not accept our dehumanization, and here's what we will do because we will not accept our dehumanization. And you've also seen some encouraging signs from at least one teacher's union, the one in Chicago. Indeed, where folks are very supportive of it and saying, look, good working conditions are good learning conditions, and outside of salary issues, we have to be a union that stands for justice to these spaces that have been historically isolated and marginalized. You rely a great deal, as you should, on W.E.B. Du Bois, the great educator and activist who also wrote the seminal work on Reconstruction. And during Reconstruction, we saw two great innovations. One, the establishment of a public school system in the South, and two, Mm -hmm. the establishment of mass black incarceration and forced Mm -hmm. prison labor. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection between the two? Yes, there's a critical connection. When we think about Reconstruction, the white power structure was fearful of black folks taking their own destiny into their own hands. Because when they did not have to lean on the orthodoxy of white supremacy, they had to create a mechanism to prevent them from getting what it was that they needed. In this case, educating themselves. So if you think about the state of Mississippi in the reconstruction years, there was a black school that was firebombed in every county, right? So this thing around understanding the heft of what education for black folks meant and means, I should say. And now thinking about what those white supremacist structures of orthodoxy did. So then at that same time, we get this explosion in dependent systems and convict leasing systems, 
right? So now, as schools are being firebombed, you now have another space for black folks to be contained in through either sharecropping slash debt peonage or this convict leasing system when they were falsely incarcerated for menial things like loitering, like walking on a sidewalk in the presence of a white person, like looking at a white person, eyeballing as they would call it. So these Jim Crow laws now go into effect, creating massive incarceration, which is a continuation of slavery and the destruction of the attempt of black folks in the South to educate themselves. James Anderson's book, The Education of Blacks in the South, documents this in detail. And I think it becomes important to understand that connection because with the elimination of self-sufficient schools also comes the reification of the slave state by way of debt peonage and convict leasing. In the present day, you point out, as do others, that it costs five times as much to incarcerate a juvenile as it does to educate him or her. But the state is willing to spend five times as much to do that. And I suppose the conclusion that we must draw is that mass black incarceration is a higher priority than mass black schooling. It is right and exact. I mean, I think we do not have to go any further than that. I mean, just the discrepancy in this age of austerity where everything is kind of deemed around budgets when you see that difference between the cost of incarceration buttressed against the cost of quality education, I can come to no other conclusion. But when you see schooling as actually part and parcel, an extension, a manifestation of the same imperative to law and order, then really it's not an either or. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important because what you see is that they fuel each other, right? And I think that's a very important point that you make. So if you have this heavily funded carceral system and then a schooling system that may be substandard, now they fuel each other, right? So now we actually see recidivism. So when someone leaves a prison, now, not having educational options or substandard educational options, especially when you talk about young folks going back into that space, if they continue to reject it, we know that in places like I'm from here in Chicago, recidivism rates are extremely high. And now, if you don't have a place for folks to be where they can actually enact and change their conditions, then you go right back into that system. So the substandard schooling fuels incarceration, and that cycle often happens. And then, to your point, because in many of those instances, the logics of the school mimic the same logics of the prison, there's really not this, as people refer to it, as a pipeline, but a nexus. These are two things that are operating in separate spaces in the exact same way. And I think this is something, and this is why I probably get the strange looks from folks, is that 
you know, when you start to think about that, that's a heavy conundrum, right? And a conundrum that people would not rather think about given their own struggles or what have you. But I, again, I think if we're serious about the broader project of liberation, we have to be clear about what it is that we're in. That was educator David Stovall speaking from Chicago. Hearings began on February 24th in Great Britain on U.S. requests to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to stand trial on 18 charges that could put him in prison for 175 years. Assange is currently being held in Britain's Belmarsh Prison, where he is reported in poor health. Black Agenda reports executive editor Glenn Ford says Julian Assange is a political prisoner of empire who deserves support, along with all the other U.S. political prisoners. Ford was interviewed on Randy Credico's radio program. In a racist society like the United States, black dissidents will, of course, face harsher persecution and longer prison terms than white dissidents. But the way we measure solidarity is in the actions of the dissidents and in the response of the state. And maybe the best measure of the contribution of fellow freedom fighters is the ferocity of the state's pursuit and prosecution of those dissidents. And nobody has been pursued with more ferocity by the U.S. state, by the U.S. national security state, than Julian Assange. It is at the level of ferocity that the state pursued the Panther Party in the late 1960s. And it really shows how effective WikiLeaks has been in revealing the crimes of U.S. imperialism all over the world. The effects around the world probably are not known to most Americans because Americans live in a bubble and they don't know or much care what happens in other people's countries. But the CIA and U.S. imperialism do. And WikiLeaks had created great disruptions in the operations of U.S. imperialism. They released hundreds of thousands of documents, cables, confidential secret cables between U.S. diplomats and other operatives at their embassies and communications within those embassies and the reporting back to Washington about what those embassies were doing. And by reading the WikiLeaks revelations, folks in those countries could learn who among their countrymen were collaborating with the U.S., with the CIA, who were going along with U.S. interference in their country's workings. They could see how the CIA's tentacles were, in fact, meddling with their own domestic affairs. And it made it much more difficult for the CIA. And so finally, the United States elevated WikiLeaks and Julian Assange as an individual to the status of a foreign adversary. They thought that his threat to the secrecy of 
U.S. operations was so great that they treated WikiLeaks as if it was a foreign country and then took the next logical step and claimed that WikiLeaks was in league with one of the main competitors with the United States in the world, with Russia. And that's where we get Russiagate and all that has... It's been a nightmare for me, Russiagate, Russiagate. I can tell you that, all right? Russiagate has been a nightmare for me, but go ahead. That's a different story. Oh, it's been a nightmare for us as well. Black Agenda Report was in that first blacklist that was released on the pages of the Washington Post only weeks after the election in 2016, in which the Post hosted an anonymous group called Proper Not, which made a list of websites. Black Agenda Report was the only black site on that list, websites that supposedly were allied with or dupes of Russia. And that was the opening salvo of the new Cold War that has fallen upon us with Russiagate as the excuse. Well, you know, Glenn, you've answered a lot of what I was going to play for you, but I'm going to play it anyway, because this is a recent excerpt of a speech that Noam Chomsky gave. And so if there's anything that was missing from what you just said, please feel free to riff on it. Uh, This is Noam Chomsky. It's like 58 seconds long, and we'll get right back to you. Well, the uh, Assange arrest is uh, scandalous in several respects. Uh, One of them is just the effort of governments, and it's not just the U.S. government. The British are cooperating. Uh, Ecuador, of course, is now cooperating. Uh, Sweden before had cooperated. Uh, The efforts to silence a journalist who was producing materials that people in power didn't want the uh, rascal multitude to know about. Okay? That's basically what happened. Uh, WikiLeaks was producing things that people ought to know about those in power. People in power don't like that, so therefore we have to silence it. Okay? Uh, This is the kind of thing, the kind of scandal that takes place, unfortunately, over and over. Well, Chomsky was talking about how WikiLeaks revealed how U.S. imperialism really works, how it makes allies with friendly governments all over the world, but also with people, individuals, political parties that collaborate more secretly with U.S. imperial aims, that collaborate with U.S. meddling in their own countries. And of course, those chickens always come home to roost. And WikiLeaks revealed the collaboration between, the effective collaboration between the Democratic Party and the Trump campaign. This is one of the greatest ironies of Russiagate, that the WikiLeaks revelations showed that it was the Democratic Party, the Clinton campaign, that favored Donald Trump getting the Republican nomination. The Democrats wanted Donald Trump to become the Republican nominee, A, because they thought that they could beat Trump, but B, because if they could run against Trump, then they could run solely against 
racism and Donald Trump's personality. And they wouldn't have to talk about bread and butter issues. They wouldn't have to talk about austerity. They wouldn't have to talk about jobs and the fact that real living standards in the United States had been deteriorating for 40 years. So they wanted to run against Trump. And the WikiLeaks revelation showed that they were encouraging not only other Democrats, but friendly corporate media to boost the Trump campaign. And that's one of the reasons that Donald Trump got $6 billion in free media play in 2016. That allowed him not only uh, to trounce his competitors in the Republican primaries, but also to, in the end, beat Hillary Clinton. So these are great ironies that flow from the WikiLeaks revelations. I got a couple more questions there, Glenn. First of all, and I asked Cornell West last week, why aren't there more when you see that WikiLeaks and revelations, the war logs and the cables and all of these areas that they focused on are non-white countries, basically. But the conundrum for me is why, being that the case, whether it be Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, and Africa, why Latin America, why aren't there more? black leaders and black politicians and black media out there right now because it's really necessary. Why aren't they now in mass in support of Julian Assange, knowing how ominous it would be if, in fact, he's brought here, prosecuted and sent to that uh, supermax in Colorado? Well, first of all, there is basically no black media in the United States anymore. The black media has been on the decline for, oh, the last half century, and essentially does not exist, not as an, an effective social force in this country. Well, wait a we second, do, Glenn, however, Glenn, one second. I'm talking about people like Eugene Robinson, all right? There are people... But that's not black media. That's uh, a black person who works for corporate media. Okay, uh, all right. And Corporate media does its job. Corporate media defends corporate interests, defends capital, and the Democratic Party also is a defender of corporate interests, of capital. And the Democratic Party has a hammerlock on black political expression. So it's all tainted by the corporate Democratic Party and its interests. And in the wake of 2016, in the wake of the assault against WikiLeaks, which then became an assault on free expression internally in the United States with the rigging of algorithms, Google rigging its own algorithms to show fallacious results. We see the Democratic Party becoming the more aggressive party of war, the more aggressive party of censorship. And the Democratic Party brings along with it, as an amen corner, the blackness leadership class, which is totally affiliated with Democrats. And we see the ridiculous spectacle of Melissa Harris Perry and Joy Reid, black personalities at corporate media, MSNBC, going into paroxysms of fury at a proxy for Edward Snowden, not even letting the man speak. Why? Why does this play well sometimes in black America? Because they were successful in linking Donald Trump 
and Julian Assange uh, in the lie that WikiLeaks was somehow allied with Russia and Russia was backing Trump's election. As I said, the great irony here is that it was in fact the Democrats who were the big boosters of Trump, the Democrats and the corporate media in 2016. They were trying to set Trump up as the Republican nominee so that they can knock him down and treat him as a straw man. But instead it backfired on him and Trump was elected. But the blame for Trump's election lies mostly with the Democrats, not with WikiLeaks. And Russia really had nothing to do with it. Right. How ominous is it, the repercussions uh, with a successful extradition and a, a show trial in the Eastern District of Virginia? How scary is that to you? Oh, it's, it's quite scary. The whole scenario has been terrifying. Ever since uh, for Black Agenda Report, we saw ourselves listed on that blacklist on the Washington Post, a newspaper owned by one of the top oligarchs in the nation who also does $600 million a year in business with the CIA. So we see that the national security state is at the helm in the Democratic Party, the party that the masses of black folks are allied with. And that means that the basic leftish, progressive political character of black America, which has put black America at the forefront of all progressive dissent, all progressive movements in this country, is seriously compromised by that affiliation with Democrats. That was Bar Executive Editor Glenn Ford speaking on Randy Credico's radio program. Chuck Africa, the last of the Move 9 political prisoners convicted in the death of a Philadelphia cop back in 1978 has been released from jail. That was cause for celebration for the nation's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, who has been locked up since 1981 in the death of another Philadelphia cop. Abu-Jamal is jubilant that a MOVE member is out of prison. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com, where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.